You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 41 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, I'm talking to author and alchemist Rubafilos Salflue. It is very difficult to make an episode about pure alchemy, as it is impossible to know at what level the listener is at. Um, but in this episode, I hope both beginners and more advanced alchemists can find something of value. Uh, we will talk uh, about what books to read, what alchemists to study, about the philosophers Mercury, Rejuvenation, Ormus, New Zealand and many other things. So enjoy. So thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. It's nice to meet you and thanks for inviting me. No problem. Um, tell the audience a little bit about who you are. Um, I go by the name of Rubafilos Solfier online. And um, I've been studying and practicing alchemy for about 25 years now. So I have a website and I have a um, Yahoo group for a forum for discussing hermetic alchemy online. Uh, I've published a couple of books on the subject of um, hermetic alchemy. And um, I suppose I've got uh, a bit of a reputation online, especially on the Yahoo group forums for discussing the subject uh, pretty much since the internet first started online. So I'm reasonably well known, I think. What does your name mean? Because it's a very unusual name. Okay, Rubaphilos is Latin. It's um, composed of two root words, Ruba being red and philos being lover of, and it refers to the final stage of the great work of alchemy. Um, and sulfur is part Latin and part French, sal meaning salt and fluir meaning fluid, which um, is a reference to one of the important um, keys, if you like, to completing the great work. How did you uh, get into alchemy from the beginning? Uh, in the late 80s, when I, um, when I sort of really first started getting involved in studying uh, Western, the Western Hermetic tradition, I kind of by accident ended up in uh, coming across a woman here who had been um, a student of um, the late Frater Albertus, and uh, she had studied with him both here in New Zealand and in Utah in the US, and finished his seven-year um, training course in Utah. And uh, she took me on as a student back in the days when I knew very little about what laboratory alchemy was or alchemy in general. And um, I immediately fell in love with the whole concept and the practice and the philosophy behind alchemy. And so um, we became very good friends and I spent nine years studying with her in her laboratory uh, in a small town, a small village 
slightly south of where I live called Havelock, which is um, sort of kind of famous in the Golden Dawn tradition because that's where the old Fari Ra temple was. So we were working not far from the old Fari Ra temple. Um, yeah, so I studied with her for um, nine years. And uh, at the beginning of that um, period of time, because she was the last um, working laboratory alchemist in New Zealand, uh, we decided to form a group to preserve um, the uh, knowledge that she was passing on. And um, really that's, that's how I got started in the study and practice of alchemy. How is the alchemy scene in New Zealand these days? Well, I think there are probably a small handful of people who are attempting to study and practice alchemy, but um, I, I very rarely ever hear of anybody seriously involved and maybe one or two people that I have regular contact here with here in New Zealand that are involved in the um, practice of alchemy, not just simply the theory side, but involved in it in the laboratory as well. So it's it's still um, a very isolated and um, sort of very rare thing to be involved in here. Is it um, is the nature in New Zealand? Uh, um, I mean, does it have a lot of gold and all these other types of of minerals? Uh, most of the gold that was available for mining here was mined out before the turn of the last century. And certainly a lot of people came to New Zealand to, um, a lot of Chinese and Americans and Europeans came here in the early settled days of New Zealand when Europeans first came here to mine out the country. Um, and there are still a lot of old mine workings all over the place, especially in um, an area up north from me called Thames and all over the South Island. Um, there are a number of other um, natural mineral resources here, but most of that has been mined out as well. Uh, we've had lead and antimony mines here in the past, but they no longer work. Most of the lead, at least the commercial value of lead, has been mined out here, and the same with the antimony. So. The greatest natural resource in um, minerals here is iron uh, because we have a large volcano on the west coast of the North Island um, known as Mount Taranaki, which over the years has spewed out quite a bit of um, natural black iron as, and it's um, ended up um, being reduced to sand and covering a beach of about oh, 300 mile stretch of beach and most of that iron sand is now mined for the steel industry so it's a very large natural resource of what's 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 technically known as titanium magnetite so that's one of the largest mineral resources that we have here in New Zealand when you do practical alchemy what what is your personal goal with it? What's your, what's your agenda? Um, I don't have much interest in the plant work, um, mainly because um, when I was first learning alchemy and studying it, I was 
heavily involved in the plant work. And Frater Albertus's method for that process, I was never quite um, happy with his philosophy and his technique for studying that. So for many years, I haven't really done much with the plant work at all. I focused almost entirely on um, advanced mineral alchemy. Although recently I've gone back to the plant work because of discovering um, Johan Hollandus, uh, Isaac Hollandus's um, plant work process. And the reason why I um, really like that process is that it is, has a, um, a lot in um, common with the acetate path to the Philosopher's Stone, which is my main interest. I'm not really interested other than the theory side of things with any other part, path to the stone. I was trained in the acetate path because that was Frater Albertus's main interest. So my teacher passed his knowledge that he provided her with onto me. And so it really just became a habit in my primary focus. So my main concern is with the acetate path and what I refer to as the Lullian tradition, which began with, the, with an individual who went by the name of uh, Ramon Lull um, and is often confused with the um, Catholic missionary of the same name, but wasn't the same guy. But he more or less, in, in the Western tradition anyway, um, um, laid the foundations for the, the acetate path tradition. So that's really... Um, my main interest and concern and the main thing that I am involved with um, working on myself and teaching other people. Wasn't Raymond Lloyd that guy who got stoned to death? Yeah, well, what what happened was there was a, um, a Spanish missionary by the name of Ramon Lau and um, he's really well known because uh, he was... Um, very enthusiastic about trying to convert um, Muslims to Christianity um, in the 1200s, 1300s. And he was stoned to death and sort of became a martyr um, for the Catholic cause. He was only a lay priest. He wasn't um, ordained, I don't think. And later in history, no one's quite sure how much later, another individual who was an actual alchemist for some reason, took on that guy's name and published a whole series of uh, very interesting alchemical texts uh, on the subject of the acetate word. So for a very long time, those two individuals have been confused because um, they used the same name. And certainly up until modern times, most people believed that Raymond Lull, the alchemist, was the same man as... Raymond Lull, the Spanish miss missionary, but it's um, widely accepted now that they weren't the same individual, that uh, the alchemist was a later person using um, the missionary's name for whatever reason um, as an alias, and that he was actually quite a different individual. Um, possibly Spanish as well, but maybe Italian. Um, but definitely not the same individual as the Catholic missionary. When you say acetate path, could you elaborate a little more for people who might not be as involved as you? Okay, well, 
traditionally or originally um, what is referred to today as the acetate path was known as um, the work of Saturn, Opus Saturni, or the um, path to the vegetable stone. And um, in modern times now, it's referred to as the acetate path because the process itself largely revolves around um, the manipulation of metallic acetates. And metallic acetates are produced by mixing a powdered metallic oxide or carbonate and sometimes a sulfide with um, acetic acid. And the product of that um, mixing of those two chemicals is um, a metallic acetate. So, for example, um, one of the most common metallic acetates used in the acetate path is lead acetate, and that's produced by um, digesting lead oxide in um, acetic acid, and you end up with a red or a green gum-like substance, which is the sort of the first substance that you use to uh, begin the path, begin the work. And um, the next step is that that gum-like substance is then heated in a distillation train, a special kind of distillation train, which is sealed and um, uh, constructed in such a way as to contain even very volatile gases. And when that uh, lead acetate is um, heated and distilled, it breaks down um, through a process which modern science calls pyrolytic distillation um, into sort of four substances, um, common water, H2O, uh, volatile um, gas, which at, it's at room temperature it's a gas, but you can contain it quite easily in a flask as a volatile fluid, um, often flammable, but not always flammable. Um, a red oil-like substance, which isn't actually an oil, but it looks on a superficial level like it is an oil, and a black, sooty, mineral-type substance. So from that distillation, you end up with four things. Um, a, a black salt or earth, an oil, or what the, what the old alchemists called the fire of the stone, um, a volatile spiritus kind of substance, which is referred to as the air of the stone, and common water. So that's your four elements. Um, and the original um, gum-like substance, the lead acetate, is referred to as the chaos of the alchemists. So the beginning of that path and that work there's a process where you, traditionally speaking, um, separate four elements from an original chaos of the elements. And then those elements are processed by various means in order to clean them and purify them. And then eventually they're recombined back together into one um, homogenous substance, which then has um, the unusual property of being able to dissolve gold uh, in, a, in a way that the old alchemists called radically dissolve gold so that it can't be converted back to a metal. And that 
um, radically dissolved gold is an oil um, that has the property of um, transmuting base metals into noble metals. Have you ever uh, seen the fabled philosopher's mercury? I haven't seen it used, but I've seen it. And um, who showed it to me discussed the method of its making and its uses and so you know there was no argument about what it was that I was looking at. How would you describe it? Uh, it's a white or a transparent um, liquid that is it's not volatile but it's slightly um, thick about the same consistency of um, full cream milk um, and it has a mineral odor to it, a mineral aroma, and um, if you leave it unsealed um, in a flask, if you put it in a flask that hasn't been sealed properly, about half of its volume will evaporate in, in, in a couple of minutes because there is a, a part of it is a very volatile portion that um, is naturally a gas at ambient temperatures. So it doesn't look anything unusual. Like if you didn't know what you were looking at, you would probably think it was um, um, some a uh, slightly more liquid alcoholic liqueur, probably with an unusual aroma to it. What causes it to, uh, to evaporate? What conditions? Um, one of the substances that goes towards making it up is extremely volatile um, distillate of lead acetate and um, that substance is so volatile that it will boil at about 30 degrees Celsius so if you hold it in your hand and if you pour a little bit into the palm of your hand it will actually boil in your hand it's so volatile and um, the liquid part of philosophic mercury is composed of that substance and some of it is never bound to the solid part properly and so if you leave it um, in an open flask it will evaporate very fast even you know on a on an average day um, in average temperatures it will evaporate very quickly what what properties does this philosopher's mercury have uh, the most important property of philosophic mercury is that it, uh, if you dissolve a metal in it, um, a pure metal, that metal will be converted into an oil. And then when you distill the philosophic mercury off it, um, that oil that you collect in its concentrated form can't be converted back to a metal. So normally... Um, in chemical methods where you would dissolve a metal, uh, you always have a, a, a salt um, at some point in the process that if you uh, heat it and then um, expose it to high temperature in a furnace or something, it will run back into a metal. And modern chemistry doesn't really know of a way of changing that kind of situation. For modern chemistry, metals are always metals, either in their mineral state 
as a salt or in their like shiny luster state as the kind of metals that we're used to dealing with in our everyday life. But philosophic mercury changes the um, structure of metals in such a way that they run as an oil and that oil can't be changed back into its metallic state. So the properties of the metal completely change. Now that's the main definition of what constitutes the philosophic mercury, but it also has other properties as well. Things like um, philosophic mercury can convert uh, standard silicon glass into a molten state so that it's kind of like um, honey, but clear, not golden in color. Um, and once glass is exposed to philosophic mercury in that kind of a way to the point where it will um, expose its more fluid nature, it can't be converted back again into um, a solid glass form. Um, that, so that's another one of the defining characters of philosophic um, mercury. They are, the, they are the two most important um, conditions of that solvent. So one of the problems with philosophic mercury is if it's kept in a boiling flask and then that boiling flask is heated to high enough temperature, the mercury will actually start to soften the flask and then it will run like a fluid and then you have a problem where you can't contain the solvent any longer and um, you lose it basically. What about all this information about uh, David Hudson and Ormus? What do you think about this this area? Uh, I've studied um, Hudson's work back when he first uh, made his discoveries a long time ago. I read an article about it in a magazine called Nexus Magazine, which is published in Australia. Um, and... Uh, I was definitely very interested in it. Uh, in later years, I was invited onto a private forum that the core group of um, people studying Hudson's work were all on that forum and they were exchanging information about what they knew and uh, what they were all doing. And um, they wanted somebody who um, was seriously involved in alchemy to kind of listen to what they had to say and to share ideas about alchemy with them because um, it's relatively well known these days but wasn't so much back then that um, the people that follow Hudson's work consider what they're doing to be alchemy. So the first important thing about that claim is that um, there's a, a, a distinct difference between being able to perform a transmutation and alchemy. The, the two are not necessarily the same thing. For example, thermonuclear um, explosion is uh, triggered by a reverse alchemical process where um, chemical elements are um, exposed to uh, conditions that are extreme enough to split atoms. Um, the thing about alchemy is it works in the opposite direction, not the splitting of atoms, but 
the um, adding to an atom components that weren't there before in order to shunt the um, nature of the atom up the periodic table. Um, so our, the difference between the whole Orms thing and Hudson's beliefs and his claim um, of having the Philosopher's Stone and alchemy was uh, the definition of alchemy is that it performs, uh, it produces transmutation agents in a very specific kind of way. Uh, there's a very specific process and a very specific philosophy um, which defines how a philosophic stone or a transmutation agent is produced alchemically. Now, if somebody else, such as a nuclear physicist, performed a transmutation um, and that process did not include the method that is defined by alchemy, then there, there's no argument that a transmutation has taken place either up or down the periodic table, but it, that it's arguable whether that process is actually alchemy because it doesn't involve the method that alchemists use. And the method that alchemists use is very important because um, of the knowledge that the process teaches about the nature of reality and um, the historic background to that process. So, for example, for somebody involved in the Orms community who claims that what they're um, involved in is an ancient process, and a number of people in that community do claim that, they like to quote biblical references about things and stuff like that and then say that this is alchemy. There may be no argument that the substance that they produce or the substances that they produce um, could be transmutation agents, but one thing definitely for sure is that they're not using an alchemical method to produce those substances. So in that way, the Orms process is not alchemy. It may produce a transmutation agents, but it doesn't use an alchemical method to get there. So in its own realm, the Orms philosophy and process may be completely valid, although I've yet to see any serious evidence that um, that community, their techniques and their philosophy actually produce what they claim because so far I've not seen any evidence of such a thing and I've paid a lot of attention to it about 10 years ago uh, and since that time nothing much has changed. The same kinds of claims are being made and no real evidence has been produced that I'm aware of that the extreme claims that they're making have actually been achieved such as transmutation and the production of um, an elixir that increases longevity. Uh, so I know they're very enthusiastic about 
um, wanting to be seen as part of historic alchemy, but the reality of the situation is that that process is not historic in, in, in any sense. It's very interesting, and it would be really interesting if it produced the kinds of results that they claim, but no, they're not the first people to be in that situation where they've made claims in reference to the alchemical tradition that have not been validated or which never were validated. So um, I'm um, a, a defender of the um, importance of being very careful about how the um, concept of alchemy is defined and what exactly what it means because it's more important than just a label it's a, an entire philosophy that's very complex and very old and has more involved in it than just looking at the process as a, a chemical operation so in a package that's pretty much how I see the Orms situation relative to what alchemy is and what claims about the Orms process make relative to what alchemy is. It's kind of like in if you compare it to religion, Ormus community is like the Mormons. Like it's a, a newer version of a, a completely different and older tradition like Christianity then. Yeah, that, that's a good analogy, I think. Uh, I just I had a, a follow-up question though, still about Ormus, just to because I uh, you might have heard about this man Jerel or Jerel. Have you heard about this guy? He's like uh, w part of the early Ormus community, I think. Oh, Gerald. Yeah. Gerald, yeah. I talked to him. He was one of the people who was on that um, forum back about ten years ago. I think it was when I was first invited and. One of the reasons why I left that forum in the end after about a year was because of my um, conversations with him. He's a very interesting guy, and I, um, after talking to him, I um, completely believed that he achieved what he claimed he achieved because he knew things that only somebody in that situation would know. And I've not really heard much about him since I talked to him back in those days, although I know he's still around and um, paying attention to things that have been said on various um, alchemical forums. Yeah, the reason I, I asked you about him was because th this uh, thing about he might, he have, he has taken uh, this red medicine, something like the Philosopher's Stone, and um, if he, he ever mentioned to you any effects of this red medicine? Yeah, what he, a bit of his background, he was an electrochemist, and so he was um, very interested in a man called Faraday, who was famous from the early years of the birth of modern chemistry. And Faraday's big contribution to modern chemistry was um, that he did a lot of experiments in electrochemistry. And um, so this guy obviously was very interested in him, and one of the things about Faraday that you won't hear talked about very much in uh, uh, modern chemistry circles where the history of chemistry is discussed is that Faraday claimed 
that through electrochemistry he could produce substances that would transmute um, base metals to gold. Nobody, I think, um, reproduced his experiments and his claims, but he absolutely insisted that he had achieved this. Anyway, this guy, Gerald, was an electrochemist, and um, he uh, experimented with Faraday's methods in conjunction with um, a famous alchemical text called um, The Secret Book of Artifias. And um, I think uh, Gerald originally got interested in this kind of process because of the Ormus movement and because a, a big part of that Ormus movement uh, involves electrochemistry and that he kind of branched off because he had a better understanding about electrochemistry than most other people anyway. He produced a substance which was a liquid as far as I understand it. Um, and he believed that it was a transmutation agent, so he tested it, and he actually uh, performed a number of small transmutations. So on the basis of that, he decided to ingest the substance, and he, for all intents and purposes, and I quite honestly believe what he said, um, he, he uh, experienced the effects of... Um, uh, rejuvenation, the classic effects of rejuvenation. For anybody listening who is unaware of um, what alchemists claim about rejuvenation, um, uh, if you ingest uh, a properly prepared alchemical rejuvenative, the effects are almost always the same, but to a stronger or weaker degree, um, you lose your fingernails and your toenails, all of your hair drops out and all of your teeth drop out. And immediately that all that has happened, they all start growing back again. Um, those, the loss of the hair and the toenails and the teeth to alchemists was a sign that the entire body had like thrown off everything that was superficial or toxic and um, that the body was then like springing to life again and reproducing all those substance, substances, hairs, the hair, the toenails, the teeth, in a um, cleaner, more pure state. That's the physical effects. And you almost hear nothing about the psychological effects, and it's something that uh, very few people, even students of alchemy, don't really pay any attention to and that's the psychological or the psycho-spiritual effects. And um, in the same way that um, a rejuvenative is a very powerful uh, detoxing agent, uh, so the physical body is um, getting rid of all toxins and uh, regenerating itself, the same thing happens in the mind. So any, um, let's say, psychological problems that an individual have, they immediately become exposed. They come out of the unconscious and um, into the conscious mind where you become aware of these things and then they need to be dealt with in, in a proper way and got rid of. So um, Gerald went through that entire process. It frightened the hell out of him because 
Um, he wasn't an occultist of any kind when he got involved because he came to the whole process through the alms movement and he was just an electrochemist by trade. He had no background in the study of occultism at all or alchemy really. Um, when I talked to him, a lot of his ideas about what alchemy were were very um, remedial. He really didn't have a proper understanding at all, which of course meant that he had no real um, knowledge or understanding of what to expect when he ingested a rejuvenative. He only really expected the physical rejuvenation and the fact that it affected his mind as well very powerfully frightened the hell out of him. Um, so um, some of the effects that happen at that level are things like when you go to sleep at night, you don't go unconscious like other people do. You stay completely conscious and you're aware of what's happening to you um, in this total cataleptic uh, sleep state. So it's like an entire night of lucid dreaming that you can't get yourself out of. Um, and of course that state of mind is, is uh, deeply esoteric and things happen there which an untrained person would have really no knowledge of. They wouldn't understand and they certainly wouldn't know how to deal with that kind of situation. So he had a lot of psychic experiences as well, and I won't go into detail about that because they're very personal. But because of all these very powerful changes that happened to him, people who knew him well um, became quite frightened for him, I think, and they felt that you know, he wasn't really going through something powerful and beneficial, that he probably had contracted some kind of a disease. Um, because you can imagine what somebody looks like when all their hair and their teeth and their toenails and fingernails drop out. It's probably not a very pretty sight. Um, and the fact that he was going through a lot of um, psychological torment at the time as well. He lost a lot of friends and became um, vilified by a number of people. And so um, he was depressed and spent a lot of time being very concerned about where this whole thing was going, which is one of the reasons why he contacted me, because he knew from the things that I was saying on the Orms Forum that I was very familiar with this whole subject and had seen a good deal of it myself. But um, that, that was kind of the long-term effects. Um, almost immediately, one of the problems with taking rejuvenatives, especially um, rejuvenatives which um, come from the mineral realm, they're so powerful that the, the way these rejuvenatives have an effect is they awaken Kundalini in the body in a way that is not at all like Eastern traditions discuss. So your body temperature rises to an extreme and um, the energy that you feel right through your entire body um, overexcites your nervous system. And your core temperature can rise so extreme levels that it could kill you if you weren't careful. So he had to place himself in an ice bath, I think for um, a whole day or two or three days or something like that because he was so afraid that his body temperature had raised so high that he was actually going to die from it. And I think this is where most of his initial problems began because he suddenly realised that the claims that the old alchemists had made about these kinds of substance were not exaggerated. They weren't lying and they weren't a joke. 
they were extremely serious and now he was right in the middle of discovering exactly how serious it was for himself. So I have no idea what eventually became of him. I know he was intending to ingest more of the substance. Um, so I would guess that eventually, sooner or later, he slowly came to terms with what was happening to him. And at least to some degree, probably, um, uh, understood the nature of the situation that he had got himself into. What about food or or sunlight? Did this change? Like when did he mention anything about this? Like maybe reduced or changed appetite, or like you you can't stand too bright sunlight and things like this. I don't remember him saying anything about that to me. His main concern with speaking with me was the psychic side of the situation because he felt, I think, that he was probably losing his mind, and because of you know, basically being just a normal everyday kind of a guy and having no background in esoteric study, the psychic experiences that he was having, the only thing that he could relate them to was um, psychotic states like schizophrenia. And I think he was very concerned that he may have actually been losing his mind. And so he was interested in what I knew about that and um, what I could tell him in order to sort of get on top of that situation. So that was the main thing that we discussed. But it's funny also because whatever he managed to produce, I mean, he, he, as you say, he wasn't really an alchemist, so he kind of produced something that real alchemists work for years and never achieve. Yeah, that, that, for me that was one of the um, most curious things about um, his situation was that um, as far as I'm aware, he's the first person that we know of historically that managed to get himself into that situation who really had no um, at least knowledgeable background of what alchemy was or how to go about uh, getting yourself into a position where you were capable of um, producing um, a rejuvenation agent or um, uh, transmutation agent. I should add something to the story though because it, it, it's important and it kind of throws a bit of light on you know, the nature of kind of accidentally coming across something like this. There was a man on um, that Orms forum who was quite e eager to um, regularly uh, warn people about the dangers of um, producing all these kind of strange substances and ingesting them and the kinds, especially where gold was concerned and the fact that a lot of people had misunderstandings about what they were doing. This guy had been working on mine, uh, like sifting through mine tailings and gold mines and he had, um, I don't know whether he had invented or he had learned a process where by which you used um, ozone to separate um, fine particles of gold from um, the tailings at gold mines. And one of the things that this process involves is high pressure hoses with liquid ozone in them, which I think acts as a solvent and dissolves the gold out of other substances. Anyway, while he was mucking around at some mine somewhere, um, 
one of the high pressure hoses or something on a piece of equipment he was using burst and he ended up having a jet of high pressure ozone gas which had gold particles dissolved in it um, basically passed right through his hand because it was a high pressure vapor um, it, his basically the flesh of his hand wasn't a barrier to that gas passing right through his fist and of course what it meant was that he ended up with particles of gold in his bloodstream and uh, one of the upshots of that situation was that he developed um, psychic abilities really fast all sorts of he claimed a number of extremely strange um, telekinetic and telepathic and psychic abilities which lasted for uh, two or three weeks or something like that but they were very extreme and of course his immediate thought was that he had stumbled across an important secret about um, gold in relation to longevity and um, rejuvenation. The problem was that he had actually poisoned his system with the um, mineral and very quickly he realized that on top of all these very interesting and strange uh, psychic manifestations that he was having that his physical body had become uh, very sick so he went to doctors and they did uh, analyze his blood and everything and um, they agreed with him that he actually had uh, heavy metal poisoning and he was almost on the verge of death so I can't remember what he did to reverse the process but somehow he managed to get it himself out of it and he was describing this whole thing on the forum I think a year or so after um, the whole thing had happened so I think he had his health back and one of his missions seemed to be to point out to people that this whole subject is not what you seem what it seems to be that in fact if you produce something which uh, provides you with these kind of psychic abilities through ingesting a substance um, a rarefied or volatile substance based in the uh, mineral world that you could just as likely equally be seriously poisoning yourself and the old alchemists pointed this whole thing out regularly in various texts way back into the Middle Ages that um, a number of pseudo alchemists had been trying to produce what they call potable gold which wasn't really potable gold at all all it was was a semi-liquid form of the metal and that while it had great benefits mentally and physically in the end you would end up dying from it basically and so you know one of the things I was concerned about was Gerald and of course I never really heard back about what happened to the guy all I know is that he basically went underground is that while all these beneficial things were happening to him there was a good possibility that at the same time he had poisoned himself and that he had got himself into a dangerous situation which he may have not been very eager to you know, let other people know about since he had encouraged a number of people to also experiment with the process that um, he had discovered. So it is possible that his lack of knowledge of alchemy 
could have in the end caused more problems for him than um, the benefits that he originally felt that he was gaining from uh, ingesting that substance. Isn't it like what Paracelsus says where the difference between medicine and poison is dosage? Yeah, that, that definitely is part of it as well, but there is also a distinct difference between liquid forms of gold and what the alchemists call potable gold. Potable gold is an entirely different substance than metallic gold. Up to a certain degree, you can ingest gold into your body and not cause yourself a great deal of harm as long as the dose is small and you don't make a regular habit of it. But it's quite common knowledge because gold was used as a medicine at one time um, you know, metallic gold was used as a medicine at one time that the medical profession quickly discovered that it was poisonous to the system if it was introduced in too high a dose and too regularly. Um, and so the belief was that alchemists had gone along the same road and had been ingesting a form of metallic gold, had gained some benefit of it, but eventually discovered that they were poisoning themselves. And now there's no argument that some individuals who were mucking around with alchemy would have ended up in that same situation. But at the same time, the real form of potable or ingestible alchemical gold is an entirely different substance, something that is quite different than the sorts of things that the almost people talk about and something which is quite different than the chemical processes which are known to reduce gold into a kind of a liquid state. Of all the uh, old famous alchemists, you know, Paracelsus, Flamel, Bruno, or oh, there, there's thousands of them, I, I guess, which do you think are uh, for an aspiring alchemist are good to focus on? Or which one should you just stay away from? Um, that's a bit of a controversial subject because I have uh, very definite views about uh, the best things to study and the things that are most dangerous or at least worthless to study. And I know a lot of people in the alchemical community who, who have their own ideas about these things would strongly disagree with my views. So that's the first thing for me to point out, that I understand <coughs> that there is a lot of disagreement with my view on the subject, but um, my personal view is very clear, that I believe that the acetate tradition is the oldest tradition because it involves methods and substances which go right back into prehistory. <coughs> So um, the very earliest alchemists who um, discovered transmutation and discovered uh, the elixir of life would have probably been individuals working, you know, 4,000 years before the beginning of the Christian era at least. And that their methods, while they uh, require harder work and a longer amount of time to achieve the goals, I believe are the safest methods because they're the simplest and they involve using the safest chemicals 
out of all the different processes that are um, dealt with in alchemy tradition. So I think the acetate path is the safest. I also think it teaches us the most, and it has the, uh, the deepest spiritual dimension to it. The background, the backstory to the acetate process or the work of Saturn is uh, extremely hermetic in the uh, spiritual and magical um, type of way of looking at the universe. So this is why I'm most interested in, in, in that approach. So as far as individuals in the acetate path that I would recommend for study, um, first of all, a background on any, anybody interested in acetate should familiarize themselves with the history of uh, Ramon Lau um, and understand that guy's place in the, in the history of the acetate path because he's really the father of the tradition. He's probably one of the first men in the Western world to have received an accurate tradition from the Middle East um, during the early Middle Ages around the period of the um, First Crusades um, and established that tradition firmly in the Western world and then taught it to other people who later developed that tradition. The, the next individual after him that I highly recommend is Sir George Ripley, who was an Englishman, and Ripley studied the um, Lullian path in Italy when he was um, Chamberlain to the Pope at that time and then brought that knowledge back to Britain and probably was responsible for founding um, a solid tradition in the UK um, based on the acetate path. Most of the writings on that subject and most of the tradition that have, has existed since Ripley's time are probably due to that man's work alone. So Ripley is, is very important because one of the problems with Lully himself is that most of his works are still in Latin. And um, the bits that we have that are translated into English are handwritten and are hard to translate. So Lully was kind of the earliest example of somebody who had written a lot of accurate detail about the acetate path. Um, after... Lully, the next important individual, I would say, was Johann Weidenfeld, who wrote a book called The Secrets of the Adepts. Um, and Weidenfeld wrote much, much later in the tradition. He was one of the last people to write in great detail about the, um, about the Lullian tradition and to discuss its place in history and the importance of that tradition and of course the practical laboratory techniques. So um, Widenfield was really gathering together and uh, presenting in publication um, a picture of 1500 years at least of historic tradition where um, the acetate path is concerned. So he's very important. He's seen more on the subject virtually than anybody else. And he said it in a way that if you focus and study him carefully, you could learn virtually everything you needed to know from him and from Ripley alone. 
Um, as for things which I would recommend not to bother with, or which are dangerous, um, I, there are two other paths to the stone which are well known and commonly practiced and to believe and are believed to be um, uh, reliable, accurate, and part of tradition. And those two paths are called the path of the regulus of antimony, or and another name for that path is the flannel path, because it's, some people believe, particularly the French believe, that um, Nicholas, the famous alchemist Nicholas Flamel, um, practiced and succeeded in the regulus of antimony path. The other path is called the path of the red dragon, and it's based on the use of cinnabar or um, mercury sulfide. Um, both of those paths are dangerous and require a great deal of skill and knowledge in chemistry because they uh, use temperatures and they use chemicals and they use processes which are dangerous. So a number of people in the history of, health, of alchemy have been um, killed or poisoned or badly injured through practicing those paths with um, not enough understanding of what they're doing. Um, so my first concern and my first warning about choosing which kind of an approach to take to advanced alchemy is that the regulus of antimony and the path of the red dragon, the least amount is known about those two paths of any other branch of alchemy. The least, almost the, everything that's written about those two paths is completely cryptic. And so there is an enormous amount of guesswork going on. Whereas with other approaches to advanced alchemy, um, some alchemists wrote cryptically about them, and some wrote almost completely openly. So there's a, a wide range of detail about the truth about how to approach these other kinds of paths, like the acetate path. So the first danger with the regulus of antimony and the red line path is that they are, they are dangerous. My other concern about them is that there are very few claims historically of people having succeeded in either of those two paths. And there are a number of claims about success, a small number of claims about success in those two paths, which are obviously bogus. Um, so there's also a, a distinct tradition attached to those two paths um, of individuals faking success in them because for one reason or another they couldn't make those paths work. So eventually they faked documents, they faked claims about them, and they actually faked um, transmutations around those processes. Probably in history also, uh, further back in history, more, more alchemists or pseudo-alchemists probably were jailed and, and killed by the authorities for practicing or claiming success in those paths than any other process, I would think. 
largely because the individuals mucking around with those processes for most part never really got anywhere with them. And a really good example of that whole situation is um, a gentleman by the name of, who goes by the name of Rubellus Petronus, who is a Portuguese um, alchemist who spent a lot of time studying both of those paths and, uh, and is particularly interested in the regulus of antimony path. Uh, in modern times, he's probably one of the most publicly well-known individuals who has written and talked about the regulus of antimony. And with all of his contacts, with all of his knowledge of chemistry, all of his skill and his um, uh, impressive background as a student of alchemy, the individuals who he learned from and talked to, he virtually made no progress at all in that path out of the earlier stages. So I have uh, a strong belief, which I'm more than willing to have changed by anybody who can prove otherwise, that there's a possibility that both of those two paths are entirely fake. And I think it's possible that what happened was earlier in history, um, in the Renaissance and in the medieval period, a lot of individuals faked alchemical documents just in order to make money. They would sell these documents to people on the basis that they were proven methods that succeeded and that they were secret documents and then they would sell them to rich people and make money out of them. And one way or another, some of these documents ended up in being believed by a lot of people because they were very convincing and have fallen into the position of being accepted as reliable, accurate, alchemical tradition when in fact they're not or it's very unlikely that they are reliable and accurate. Or they've been so encrypted that uh, you know the knowledge is lost. Yep, that, that's, that's another possibility that they are accurate paths but that they are so they're written so vaguely and so encrypted that it's actually impossible now to decipher what those documents say anymore. But for a person who wants to get started with practical practical alchemy, um, would you recommend the acetate path, or is there something easier? One of the good things about um, what I mentioned before about um, Isaac Hollandus's plant work is that it's basically the same process that's used in the acetate path, but it's applied to plants. There is a small amount of skill that's required to work Hollandus's process, and you have to be a bit careful, and you need to be taught by somebody who's done the process before, at least for the first couple of times until you get your head around it. But one of the benefits of that Hollandus's plant work is opus vegetable, is that it's a very interesting, very educational, and Um, relatively speaking, easy process to begin to study alchemy with. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who's um, beginning for the first time to enter into the study of laboratory alchemy is to get a copy of Hollandus's book, Opus Vegetable, which is part of, you can get it as part of the Rams collection of manuscripts, alchemical manuscripts, you can find them online. If you Google um, the word R-A-M-S in capital letters, it'll take you to a guy's website who sells 
um, CDs with all those documents on them. And the Hollandist documents, one of them there is the Opus Vegetal. Um, it's not an easy thing to understand, but if you picture it and take out all the practical techniques, um, it's not hard to piece the process together. And there's also um, a number of people online at the moment who are discussing their work and um, sort of sharing information about how to um, learn that process and practice practice it yourself. So it, it's a very educational, both on an esoteric spiritual level and as far as the mechanical process of the lab work. Once you manage to get your head around that vegetable process, the virtually exactly the same technique is used on minerals, which then makes that process easier to do and a lot safer to um, do. So this is this is one of the reasons why this is my approach to the whole subject of the acetate path now is to teach that Hollandist process first because it's safe and easy to learn and it's very interesting. Do you have a suggestion of of a book or a text for for an alchemist who are already quite advanced? Um, on the acetate path, the most important text that I recommend are Ripley's Bosom Book, Ripley's um, Medulla Alchemiae, and uh, Samuel Norton's um, Clavicular Alchemy, and Widenfield's Secrets of the Adepts, Becker's Das Acetone, and uh, for, for good background reading, Waits, A.E. Waits, um, Hermetic Museum. And you write books yourself? Yeah. Um, the guy who I mentioned just previously, Rubellus Petronas, he had written a book on the um, Regulus of Antimony part oh, years ago now. I think it's about 12 years ago. And he had published in a, a number of European languages, but um, wanted it published in English. So approached me to edit um, his manuscript into English for him, which I did. And then he started looking for publishers and it took him quite a few years, but then he came, he, then he was approached by um, a guy who had a new publishing business called Salamander and Sons. He's an Australian who lives in Thailand. Um, and um, the editor of Salamander and Sons approached me as the guy who had originally transcribed Rubellus's book into English in order to um, discuss the text, my transcription. And at the same time, he said to me, I, I understand that you've written quite a bit yourself. I'm interested in looking at some of your written material uh, with a view to publishing it. What he was specifically referring to was that some years ago I had, uh, in the early days of the Yahoo groups forums, email forums, I had run a forum where I taught um, the basics of uh, the hermetic approach to alchemy as far as the theory and philosophy was concerned, as well as discussing the plant work and the acetate path. And I ran that forum uh, in a format of uh, posting a number of essays on the subject. And those essays mounted up to um, 
quite a, quite a number, and he said it would be, in his opinion, it would be a, a good idea to publish the whole lot, re-edit them, clean them up, and publish them in a series of um, five books, which we agreed on. So I started reworking them, and the uh, first book in that series, which is called the Hermes Paradigm series, was published, I think, about six years ago now. So it's been on sale for about six years. A couple of years later, the second book in the series was published um, by Salamander and Sons, um, and that was a book on the plant work, basically on Frater Albertus's view of the plant work. Um, then, unfortunately, Salamander and Sons, I think, have got themselves into financial difficulty because of being a small, basically one-man publishing company in a world now where hardback, you know, where, where hard copy books are not selling as well as they used to because of the internet. I think he was finding it a little bit hard to make ends meet, so he's having difficulty paying royalties to his um, writers, and so I stopped providing him with manuscripts on that basis. And recently released my third book in the Hermes Paradigm series as a, a digital copy for the internet, which is at my website in PDF format. Um, so shortly I'm going to go back and digitalize the first two books in the series and complete the fourth book, which will be on the acetate part, which is almost finished now, and then start work on the last book in the series, which is on inner alchemy uh, from a traditional hermetic point of view. Most of that is in um, rough manuscript format, but it's um, very much ready to be um, compiled properly into the fifth volume in the series. And that will be released digitally as well. What do you think is the future of, of alchemy? Uh, do you ever think it will become mainstream or what do you foresee in the next 20 years? Certainly not mainstream in the next 20 years. Um, since I first got involved in studying alchemy 25 years ago, um, you know, uh, things have changed a great deal. When I first came online in about 1995 uh, and the first alchemical email forums started popping up on the internet um, well before the days of organizations like Yahoo running the massively huge email forum um, sites back when people were basically doing it themselves. Um, there weren't a lot of people interested in the subject of laboratory alchemy like there are today. Um, it was also more strictly confined to people who had been uh, studying things like Frater Albertus's work and Jean de Bouy's Philosophers of Nature. Um, and the range of information that was understood and studied back then was um, 
much more restricted than it is now. Then we had people like Adam McLean setting up his alchemy website where he provided a large number of classic texts that a lot of people couldn't get their hands on before that website. Then the number of forums grew. Then we had things like the Ormus movement sort of, you know, becoming involved in alchemy as well. There's now a lot of crossover between the Orms movement and traditional alchemy where you're getting Orms people who are sort of still practicing in that area but are now becoming more interested in alchemy and bringing a lot more chemical knowledge into the realm of alchemy. There's also now, you know, a, a movement which has happened mainly in about the last five years where there's a big division in the alchemical community now between people who are seriously esoteric and interested in the spiritual side of alchemy and those who are really only interested in the chemical side. A big division is happening, you know, really as we're speaking between those two groups of people. I think in the future what's going to happen is that division is going to become wider. There's going to be more of a, uh, there's going to be a return to um, a commercial and industrial interest in alchemy in the future. And I think we're also not very far away at all from somebody um, producing a transmutation agent and making it public, making the process public on something like um, YouTube. I think we're probably very near to that happening in the future, in the near future, within the next 20 years probably. You said there was might be a bigger division between uh, spiritual alchemy and practical alchemy, but isn't the point of the practical to be a part of the spiritual process when you're doing the practical work? Well, certainly in my opinion, yes, and in the opinion of other people who are interested in the spiritual side of alchemy. But one of the things that wasn't really understood in the early days of people In the early days of the internet, when people interested in studying alchemy first came online, um, one of one of the surprises for a lot of people who are interested in the spiritual aspect of alchemy as well as the, the lab work was that in fact there were was a whole group of people who had nothing but a chemical interest in um, alchemy, who believed that the spiritual side is nothing but complete garbage. And as a as a as a layover from superstitious Middle Ages and uh, Christianity being wrongly mixed up with chemistry, and they see alchemy today as having as needing to be or having been purged of all that superstitious rubbish, and that it should be looked at as a clean, sterile science in the same way that chemistry is. And there's a lot of people involved in the um, alchemical community who have that point of view and who insist that it is the only proper way of dealing with alchemy. And then you have a whole group of other people who say, look, uh, the, the entire history of alchemy is grounded in uh, a spiritual point of view and in the hermetic tradition that the things are intimately bound together. Um, and that they should not be studied as separate and 
Uh, certainly the lab tradition should not be purged of a slight spiritual heritage. And now that it's become quite obvious in the last 10 years that these two very distinct groups of people are studying alchemy, originally there was a lot of confusion about why were all these people involved in the alchemical community who had absolutely no interest in the esoteric side at all? And there was a lot of arguments, a lot of arguments on alchemical forums between those two groups of people. Often, um, individuals involved in those, alchem uh, in those arguments were not um, announcing their personal point of view, the stance that they were coming from. And you'd only learn over a period of time by the nature of each individual's argument that this guy here is obviously involved in the spiritual side and that guy there is obviously only interested in the chemical side of it and sees it as nothing more than a new branch of chemistry. And since that kind of learning process has happened and everybody's become aware that there are these two very distinct groups of people interested in alchemy, recently, you know, only in the last couple of years, really, a, a big uh, division has started happening between those two groups where they're uh, forums are basically catering for one type of group or the other, basically. Or people are leaving particular groups because the other faction has become too strong there and they don't have a voice of their own anymore. So they're founding their own groups for discussing their own points of view. So that uh, rift is increasing now. And one of the good things about that is that discussion in general on our chemical forums is settling down now and becoming less aggressive. And um, it means that the discussions are becoming more in-depth. People are learning more and understanding more because everything's not being interfered with by nasty arguments that used to happen in the past. If people want to check out your books and your other writings, uh, what's the website? Um, Salamander and Sons, as far as I know, is still selling copies of my first two books. So you can buy, still buy uh, hard copies of my first two books from Salamander and Sons. Um, that's www.salamanderandsons, that's one word, all lowercase, dot com, I, I believe. You can find them on Google anyway. Um, I have a page on their website where you can find out information about my books. Uh, my website, which is really uh, under construction constantly, and I've just recently started changing everything, is www.rubaphillis.com. Um, and um, I run a Yahoo forum called Hermetic Alchemy, which you can search for on Google or under the Yahoo Groups um, website. You can search for Hermetic Alchemy and find that there. And that forum largely was established originally um, because a group of um, students of alchemy wanted me to present um, my understanding of the subject of hermetic alchemy. So uh, almost two years ago now I founded that forum and I've been posting um, essays on everything to do with the subject of hermetism, Western hermetism, and alchemy um, there almost on a weekly basis and then compiling those essays into single volumes 
digital books, basically, and making those available at my website and at the um, Yahoo group itself. Um, so that forum is open for anybody who wants to discuss Western Hermetic Alchemy and who's interested in just sitting there um, watching the discussion and seeing the essays that I've been posting there. And there's a lot of detail in those essays on both the lab work and um, on the inner work. Um, and the inner work is particularly interesting because I discuss a lot of stuff there that's never been seen or heard anywhere else. So it's um, a lot of new, very interesting information there on the subject of inner alchemy. Cool. I will also link in the program notes to these websites so people can easily find them. Uh, but uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. It was very interesting. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this talk. I certainly did. And if you want to check out more of Rubafilos' work, go to rubafilos.com. And that's R-U-B-A-P-H-I-L-O-S.com. And now for some music. Uh, a while back I found this guy called John Mark Harris who makes very beautiful piano music. And I think one of his songs called Icarus Dreams from the album Piano Trance would be a perfect ending to this episode. You can check out more of his stuff at johnmarkpiano.com. I will post additional links to John Mark Harris and to Ruba Filos in the program notes as usual. Freedom is in the mind.